Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast. It's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. Next week, we're going to be talking to a historian, a couple of artists, and an entrepreneur from Edinburgh, Scotland. But first, I wanted to drop a couple of bonus episodes for you. Today, we'll be speaking with Paul Johnson. He's the editor of a luxury travel blog. The blog has received multiple awards and was voted one of the world's best travel blogs. I hope you enjoy today's conversation, and I hope his travel blog will inspire your next quest. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. I was looking at your background and bio, and I think it's probably pretty safe to say that you're the only PhD glaciologist who got into the travel writing and and travel business. So, can you share with me a little bit about um, the passions you had when you were small, how you got into your university work, and how that led to what you're doing now? Sure. So, thank you very much for having me, by the way. From a really young age, I've always been interested in travel and the world and everything around us. Uh, I remember having a, I think it was a Collins Atlas, which was a pictorial atlas with all these pictures of amazing places around the world that uh, I, I would look at for hours and hours. Consequently, I, I went on to university and studied geography and geology. It was a, a joint honours degree. Um, I suppose pursuing sort of uh, my interest in, in in all things travel, partly. After I did my degree, I stayed on at the same university. This was Kiel University in, in the UK, not, not in Germany, to do a PhD in glaciology. Perhaps also just sort of prolonging my student years and uh, <laughs> <laughs> avoiding having a real job. Well, for a long time, I've, I've lived in quite a, a touristy part of, of the UK. It's very popular with tourists. I think they say it's the no, the most popular tourist location outside of London, and that's a place, uh, it's an area really called the Lake District, the Lake District National Park. Um, if you've ever watched the Hollywood film Miss Potter, it's all about somebody called Beatrix Potter, and it's all based around this this area. Okay, perfect. And so when I was um, doing my PhD, I actually st- started a business distributing tourist literature around all the hotels in the area here. And so I was coming back at weekends from doing my research and doing this work. And I also had to go overseas for for my work. I I worked mostly in Greenland for my PhD. But what it also meant is that when I came to writing up my PhD was when the web first came along as we know it now. So this was uh, about 1996. Uh, so I got interested in web design from the very, very early days when you had to hand code everything. And the natural thing for me to do was initially a website for my parents' business. They had holiday cottages in this part of the UK that I'm talking about. So I did a website for them. When I say holiday cottages, I think in the States you would call them vacation rentals. Mm-hmm. We also call them self-catering. And I did a website for them. If you look back at it now, it's pretty primitive. But in those days, it was... It was quite cutting edge. Very quickly, they were already 
getting about 70% of their business from repeat bookings. But with mm. this new new source of inquiries, suddenly the internet, in the space of about 12 to 18 months, the internet was accounting for about 40% of their business, bearing in mind they were already getting 70% from, from repeats. So that actually snowballed uh, quite quickly for me to me doing websites for a lot of hotels in the area and eventually for a small tourist board and actually the Cumbria tourism which covers the whole of that national park. Did you just figure this out because I remember when the internet was emerging when we went from DOS to checking my email at university. So did you just figure it out by trial and error because you would have been one of the first? Yeah, pretty much. Just like you can search now how to do web design, I would I would basically teach myself, learn the sort of the basic HTML code that, that websites are based on today. Uh, so yeah, and, and the, you, there wasn't really any software to, to help you do it. So it was literally done in, in Notepad. Wow, cool. So that was in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, right? Yes, yes, that's uh- correct. And then obviously I completed my PhD. Uh, I was already distributing these tourist leaflets and I was also doing websites for tourism businesses. So I started a business with these two very separate sides to the business. One with me sat at a computer and another we had vans going out with boxes Mm -hmm. and boxes of leaflets that were... So when you go into a hotel and you see those displays of different tourist attractions, leaflets for different tourist attractions, we were the people that were uh, Mm. stocking stocking those displays if you like yeah after a few years i really wanted to just focus on the internet side of things so i i kind of dropped that other side so so that i could do that the little displays at the hotels are kind of like a physical blog so like a physical blog essentially yeah to a digital <laughs> blog i love it yeah. <laughs> so and and i'm just this is just for my curiosity but what did you write your thesis on ah <laughs> and so as you possibly know all PhDs are very, very specific about what they're about. So to put it in sort of layman's terms, uh, glaciers, as you know, pick up a lot of debris or dirt. Uh, and that's why when sometimes when you look at a glacier, it's not all white and pristine. It's actually quite dirty and black. And and that, uh, and most of this goes on at the bottom of a glacier where the, the ice comes into contact with, with the land. And my supervisor for my PhD had identified three different types of debris at the bottom of the glacier. I'll keep this short, don't worry. (laughs) The the very bottom layer is what he would have called the solid fasces. It's almost completely uh, packed with dirt with ice in between. And then above that, there was something called a banded fasces where you get these bands of dirt. And then above that, was what he called a clotted ice fasces. Elsewhere in the country, it's called called something else. Uh, sorry, elsewhere in the world, it's called something else. And I was studying, and, and this was just clumps of dirt between ice crystals. And my PhD was all about how that got there. Wow. And um, I would have thought one of the layers would have been fossils, but no? No, no. Uh, so basically, glaciers are eroding the land and and whatever land they go over it might be igneous rock it might be sedimentary rock or and obviously if it goes over sedimentary rock it could erode rock that contains fossils but no you wouldn't normally see fossils in it it tends to be quite a fine fine debris got it so let's fast forward it's the 20th anniversary of your 
of your blog. Next year, actually. I started it in 2005. Oh, 2005. Okay. So it we'll just give it a, a luxury travel blog. A luxury travel blog, all one word, dot com. I can tell that you're building some other things out too. We'll go to that in a second. But right now, I just want to know how it started. And did you have, you obviously knew a little bit about SEO and coding, but when you started it in 2005, did you strategically know how to get a lot of hits on the site or what was your mission for the site at that time so if we take my sort of web design career i obviously i mentioned i was doing websites for hotels and and other tourism businesses as well the next progression from that is i moved into doing websites in-house where we created travel sites that we owned if you like and then we would generate affiliate income on the back of those. So we had, sorry, a very large directory of hotels in the UK. And if people booked hotels through those channels, we would get a commission from the booking. So we moved away from doing websites for third parties to just doing websites in-house. And obviously the blog fits that mold. Actually, in all honesty, the, the blog was something that when blogs came along, which was I think about 2003, 2004, that kind of time, it was really something I just sort of did as a hobby in my lunch hour. Uh, so I would be having my sandwich at my computer and just uh, browsing. And I think I should sort of document some of this information that I'm finding and, and put it all in one place. So it was more, more as a hobby at first, really. I obviously had some knowledge of how to get traffic to these things because of what else we were doing. But yeah, initially it started as a hobby and then it kind of just grew from there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one of the the best magnets to traffic is great content, but... Beyond that, what are the secrets? Is it just a bunch of links to other places or? I, the, the secrets are forever evolving in terms of what was valid 20 years ago has massively moved on now. And obviously the amount of competition has hugely changed as well. So one of the big things to my advantage 20 years ago was one there wasn't anything like the competition that there is now. So it was the first blog to focus on luxury travel. Yes. There was probably only a a relative handful of travel blogs in existence full stop then. And most of the the ones that I was seeing at the time were more of the budget variety backpackers in Asia that were maybe documenting their trip for relatives back home to see that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not really anybody doing it for with commercial goals, I would say. Right. Lots of vanity blog projects around that time, I remember. Yes. And perhaps just people not, obviously you you do get the people doing it much for vanity's sake, but sometimes literally as almost like an online journal. So Mm -hmm. just perhaps almost recording it for, for their own sake. And so, but other people happen to be able to see it as well. So, yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about the luxury market and travel, did those two begin together or did you kind of niche down into that market? I very much started with that niche in mind. I kind of moved on from my student days where I had done interrailing and youth hosteling. And actually it coincided, I suppose, with I went on honeymoon in 2003 and we we splurged on that. And I suppose it opened my eyes to what else was out there in terms of luxury. And I did a lot of research for our honeymoon. My One thing I read before we got married, uh, 
before I married my wife was that people spend an inordinate amount of time actually planning their wedding day, which might only be a matter of hours, and then quickly go into a travel agent and book book the next two, three weeks in the space of half an hour or something. Obviously, I was working in travel, but I was I spent quite a lot of time researching what I wanted to do because uh, my wife actually didn't, I say she didn't have a say in it. I basically booked it all. She did not know where she was going, what she was doing. Oh, but that's fun. Until literally she got on the plane. Yeah. Even though she'd had all her inoculations and all that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and where did you go? What what places? So we, we actually went to Tanzania and we did a safari going up to a number of places, Ngorogoro Crater, Serengeti, Lake Manyara. And then we went to a private island off Zanzibar called Menember Island. Nice. So let's just talk about luxury for a second. What do, because sometimes the word can be overused, but I just want to know from your kind of word association, what do you think, what are the best descriptors of a luxury market? What does the luxury market want that the the masses miss or don't want? Just like what what words do you think of? So you're quite right that luxury is is, is one, one a very overused term, and it's it means different things to different people. So for some people, it might be the sort of glitz that you get in somewhere like Dubai, and for other people, it might be the solitude of somewhere like Greenland, where it's peaceful and so on. Personally, my the sort of definition I give to people is. That is, if we're talking about sectors such as the accommodation, you know, luxury hotels or resorts, or even luxury tour operators and so on, it all comes down to my mind to service. Essentially, that is staff and and how they handle the experience. Uh, I would say, and uh, examples of really good luxury are where the staff exceed expectations and almost anticipate what you would like as a guest before you perhaps even realise yourself. So whether it be you've just gone out for a run from the hotel and then you come back and and they've seen that you've gone and they've got a glass of water ready for when you come back or that's really simple. But it's that kind of anticipation of what the customer might might want. Or they overhear uh, a couple's a couple's argument and so they hire a violinist for dinner. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for me also, it's. It's about always saying yes and all inclusivity. I think I think a lot of of that market they want speed, but they also they want to save time, but they also want comprehensive. They want holistic experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah. And something different to what the masses are enjoying you know yes exactly that probably goes back to the aristocrats but one thing that i noticed i lived in san francisco for 20 years and when i was more social and kind of running around i always noticed you know they'd make this derogatory term like let's not go to this place that's bridge and tunnel meaning that the (laughs) aristocratic the high society have discovered it and have already left it they don't want to go there anymore so the people come in from across the bridge like brooklyn or the bay bridge and so when bridge and tunnels started coming then people would say it's not cool anymore because everyone knows about it okay (laughs) so my question for you is have you seen those types of trends with travel like are there obviously it's the globe is getting smaller and smaller but i know several years ago 
Croatia was the next place to go. And so I'm wondering, what are the trendy spots right now that are still kind of off the beaten path that you find the luxury market really being drawn to? That's, I think the luxury market is is kind of almost it's in places that you might be surprised. So whether it be Croatia or or and that sort of bridge and tunnel reference you make, I think is a really interesting one because obviously there's different tiers of luxury. There's the the really the sort of zero point one percent that are flying private jet everywhere and and so on, or there's just the five star experience or even the four-star experience that is enjoyed by a much wider audience than that very, very top elite. That 0.1%, they can obviously go anywhere and and the world is very much their oyster, whether it be an island in the middle of the Atlantic or, or Pacific or whatever. You don't see any trends in terms of this is the place we like to go. I think the trends that I notice are more the types of travel that people do. So obviously during COVID, we had a lot more people looking for villas and things like that than hotel experiences. There was a a lot more people looking, rather than it being necessarily destination or location specific, it's meant to be that things like culinary travel are very, very popular at the moment. Experiential travel's been sort of on the rise for the last five, ten or more years as well. I do events and I do smaller curated experiences. And I have one coming up in a Scottish castle in 2025. Tell me if you think this is on trend or if there's even a desire for it. Have you noticed people having a need or desire for no tech? Like going back to basics. Yes. Well, I don't know if the demand is there, but I've been to so World Travel Market, which is the, the big event that's held in London each year. I spoke to a, a from Italy and his business was all about catering for people that were looking for no tech. So literally you arrive, you hand over your phone, it goes into a, a metal tin or whatever and is locked away and you don't have access to it, and they just go and do things like tour vineyards or whatever it might be, and literally don't get their phone back until the end of the holiday. How how well he's doing, I don't know, but there's certainly people offering those kinds of services for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people would say, no, thanks. And then there's a small group of people that would probably go through the seven stages of grief. First, there would be panic, then arguing, bargaining, and then maybe surrender. Would you enter an experience where you had to give up your cell phones for a few days or even a week? More on that over the weekend with some more bonus episodes. But right now, go to aluxurytravelblog.com for articles, resources, and even to sign up for Paul's newsletter. And on Thursday, we'll be completing our conversation with Paul Johnson, editor of aluxurytravelblog.com. See you then.